You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening and welcome everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Friday the 27th of March 2020. Thank you for, tune, t- thank you for tuning in. Um, hope the Lord is finding you well wherever you are in the world, whatever is happening in your nation right now. Obviously there's a lot happening. A, I'm not going to go too much into the news, but in in the United Kingdom, I, I live in Northern Ireland, um, our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has come down with, uh, what is this, swine flu for a second there, coronavirus, and um, also the Health Secretary, and uh, it, it's just a really, really strange time to be alive. Not completely unprecedented. There's been pestilences and plagues of various sorts throughout history so we really as christians need to be in prayer and there seems to be nowhere on earth that seems to be able to escape this recently read and just recommended to you uh, joseph piper who um teaches at greenville seminary and uh wrote an excellent article on covid19 i think if you just type in joseph piper um talking about in a very balanced way, I feel God's judgment and providence and things like that. Um, often there can be a danger in applying it too specifically. This is happening to this country for this particular thing. But at the same time, our nations all around the world are butchering children in the womb. And what also is happening, the redefinition of marriage. So the nations of the earth are just spitting in the face of God, and it feels like a lot like the Tower of Babel. Almost, we were we were building towards greater structures in our society, and closer and closer in our technology and everything else, and so on, and growing more and more hardened and rebellious against the God of Heaven. And what it looks like, and we don't know what the future may hold, but it looks like. The nations are going to be scattered now. It looks like there's not going to be much air travel for some time. I mean, even once the peak and everything drops off and this thing, this thing is still going to linger around and there's still going to be some various restrictions on travel and all this kind of stuff. What that will look like, we won't know until afterwards, but certainly for the foreseeable future, even once we get through the worst of this, this isn't going to go away anytime soon, I don't think. And I thank you, for everybody, for tuning in. A few people, um, uh, Brother and the Lord has reminded me to as well. I forgot. There's so much happening. Um, just There's so much happening. Uh, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, has gone into lockdown as well. And um, it's probably, I think people are like asking, wasn't it already, I suppose it was a form of restriction and closing of certain businesses but now it's like stay in your home i think what is probably going to happen in the short term there's going to be a certain amount of enforcement but that enforcement is going to increase through necessity and um i think you can i'm kind of I'm, i'm amazed at how much denial has kind of gone on we have two big massive warnings in in the form of Italy and now Spain. Um, I think I've probably got to the point where, you know, on, there are some people, some journalists, who are kind of late to the party and think they can figure it out epidemiology in about five minutes. Um, there's a lot of clutching at straws. There's a lot of panic. And it, Obviously, it's it, it, it's a horrendous time. 
I I've been getting my head around this for a couple of weeks. I'm mentally prepared for this in some way, and I, and in other ways, I'm not. I'm not mentally prepared for it. it. Doesn't matter how much you think about this thing, you're not going to be completely mentally prepared. I remember myself, and my wife, three weeks ago. I think it was three, two weeks ago. I can't remember when it was. We did a slightly bigger shop than normal. We just said, oh, yeah, we'll just get a little bit more rice and a few other things. And we did a little bit here and a little bit there, nothing major. And we just said, you know, Matt, just in case those people are all right. And look, if if I'm if they're wrong or whatever, well, you know, we have extra rice and it's probably going to be there for a couple of months afterwards. And little by little, um, the more I studied into this, anyway, I think. Again, if you want my recommendations for people, this, there are some good people with medical back, good me medical background, and the the experts are virtually all agreed on this. There's a few fringe guys and a few couple of academics who have barely studied this who want to get their name in the newspapers. Okay, grand, you'll always get that. Um, and there's a lot of conspiracy theories going around. I even see people sharing on David Ike. Remember David Ike? He went to Peru, came back, and said to everybody he was the son of God. I can see people, unfortunately, sharing his stuff around. So, Christians, be careful what you're sharing around. Who are you sharing around? Just be incredibly careful. Um, I know it's a time of panic. I know it's not easy. But I beg of you, just make sure the people you're sharing around have some kind of credentials in the area. Okay, that's all I'm saying. If I want to get my if I want to get my car fixed, I want to go to a mechanic. I do not want to go to anybody else but a mechanic to fix my car. Anyway, that's enough on that. Let's go to Psalm 2. So we said we would go through a psalm at the beginning of every one. I'm probably not going to play the tunes today because we have a lot to get through. Later on in the program, I'm going to go through the life of a man by the name of Alexander Henderson, who was a 17th century divine. Was involved in the Westminster Assembly of Faith, or no, Assembly of, um, Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster Assembly was involved in, but far more than that. And I think his life can teach us a lot on how to deal with crisis, national crisis. And uh, Alexander Henderson in his day was a national leader, spiritually mainly, but also nationally. He was, um, you know, kind of a, a chaplain at, to the court. Uh, of Charles the the first, even though he was a tyrannical king, but he had an opportunity to to share the gospel to him and every everything else and so on. So I think we can learn a lot from the life of Alexander Henderson. But we'll look at that in a second. So Psalm two we're going to do today. Um, some of the psalms when we go through, probably going to not going to read all of them, but we'll read this one today because it's not too long. Psalm two says this, and let us hear God's word. Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their, bands in peace, uh, their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill, of Zion, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Just very briefly, we'll just say a word of prayer so the Lord will guide us in our thoughts and meditations on this passage of Scripture. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we come before you, trembling across the nation, Christians not knowing what to do. Lord, we, we pray that you would lead us as we meditate upon your word. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So 
the first section of the psalm, why did the heathen rage? This, this sense in w- of why did the nations rage? Hagoyim. This is Hebrew. The word Hagoyim can be translated nations, Gentiles. In in the authorized version, which I have memorized, why did the heathen rage? I think that's it, isn't it? Have it there in front of me. Basically, it's the same word. And why can it be translated nations? Well, yeah, why did the heathen rage? Because the Gentiles, it's the same word. And the nations were the nations outside of Israel. And who was outside of Israel? Unbelievers. The, the, the visible church on earth during that time were, was Israel. Okay, now it's expanded, obviously, beyond the borders of Israel. Why did the heathen rage and the people plot, plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves rulers to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So there's, um, you can see the rulers, the, the nations that surround, in rebellion, in rebellion against the king of Israel, that is Jesus Christ, the anointed. Now there were anointed kings, um, and there is a sense in which Christians are also anointed. But the anointed one here, this word in Mashiach and then into, into Greek, Christos, or, you go, or Christ. So his anointed saying, let's break, their ba- like this, break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. Sorry, I've got this like memorized in, in, from the authorized version. Um, habit of saying it. Not a bad thing, by the way. Um, so there's a desire in the nations that don't follow God to break away from the the restraint of the word of God, to break away from any semblance of submission. And you see this today with, with the redefinition of marriage, and you also see that today, again, with the whole abortion issue. Any breaking their bonds in pieces and casting away the cords from us, so while this happens, while the nations are in rebellion against God, are they going to win? Well, it's very clear. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Be in derision. Just foolish folly. It is like the, perpetu- the proverbial ant trying to pick a fight with an elephant. It has no hope. So it's utterly foolish for the nations to be at war with God. It's not in their best interest, and that is for sure. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then the Lord shall speak to them in his wrath. So how does he speak to them? In wrath. The word of God, when it speaks forth, it will condemn them. They are sinners. The heaven declares the glory of God. All the revelation of God will condemn them and distress them in his deep displeasure. And there's various forms of it. There's various forms of God's wrath, and it can come in pestilences, it can come in diseases, and it can come in various different ways. Yet I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is speaking about Christ, the only begotten Son of God. While we are adopted sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ, He is the only begotten Son. Now, whether there's two ways this verse could be understood, this verse could be understood, today I've begotten you from eternity past, in that sense. There's also another one where he is declared in time. I've seen one or two interpretations of this, but whatever the case for our purposes today, he is the begotten of the only begotten son. Ask me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. The ends of the earth for your possessions. This king on this Holy Hill of Zion, the church, is also not only king of the church, he's also king of the nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them in pieces. 
Now, what is the instruction to the kings? What is the instruction to our the 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 Taoiseach down in the Republic of Ireland, Leo Varadkar? Or what is the instruction to Boris Johnson as we pray that he gets well from this coronavirus? Or anybody else in leadership, Donald Trump or whoever else, now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. This does not happen today. And you say, well, well, that's not going to happen. And I know we think that way, but we should never diminish the power of the gospel. There is nothing that restrains God by saving by few or by many. Who is to say that through all this calamity, that the nations, the kings, would not bow to Christ, that he would not change their hearts? You think, no, I can't happen. Why couldn't that happen? I even forget about eschatology for a second. I am post-mill, and I'm biased towards that, but forgetting about that for a second, is there anything that stops God from saving kings and bringing them into submission to him. I hope you say the answer is no. Salvation is of the Lord. This is why we pray for kings. We don't pray for them to continue their evil deeds. We pray against their evil deeds. But we pray that they will come to know Christ. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Worship him. Lest he be angry and perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So in this day and age, when all these things are happening, these horrible, horrible, horrible things, when, you know what, parts of the world that haven't been hit by the, let's face it, the deaths are going to come from coronavirus, and we're going to all know people who are affected. In the last few days, I know of a fair number of people who have come down with it are now hospitalized. In the British Isles, I'm talking about even. It, it, it's a scary thing. It's a scary time. Blessed are all those who fear him. We have to remember that. No matter what happens to us, whether we get we were brought home to the Lord tomorrow or we're, whether it's in 50 years' time, the Lord's in complete control. But the greatest blessing is that we remember time and time again, we put it before us, that to be blessed is to be in the Lord, to fear His name, to kiss the Son. And it's not just us, it's also leaders. If you're listening to this and you're a magistrate, you're a judge, there's greater condemnation upon you if you do not bow the knee to Christ than if you hadn't been in that position of power. Because we know from the beginning of Romans 13, we dealt with it the other day, that judges, magistrates, get their authority from God. That's why it says if you resist these magistrates, you're also resisting God. We've got to make sure that when we do, if we ever do, go in against the government and we in, are in, in opposition to tyranny, we make sure it's tyranny. And it's a biblical form of tyranny. And we make sure that this is an illegitimate king in violation of that fifth commandment and that covenant between the people and this king. Because the fifth commandment doesn't just go one way. Okay, so we're going to start off with the life of a man by the name of Alexander Henderson. Start off with, but for this section of, of the program. And Alexander Henderson is not well known. It's well known to people who are familiar with Scottish Covenanter history. We would remember him fairly well in our denomination, Reformed Presbyterian churches. There's one in North America, there's one in Australia, there's one in Scotland, and there's another system, my own denomination, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. 
we would trace ourselves back theologically and everything else back to men like, well, John Knox, ultimately. And after him, Andrew Melville. And then later, Alexander Henderson. John Knox is remembered by many, as he should be. Uh, Andrew Melvin, Mel, uh, Melvin, Melville, not so much. And, and even less so, Alexander Henderson. One of the reasons for that is he never wrote it to the extent that, that David Dixon wrote. David Dixon's volumes are available, Banner of Truth. He was contemporaneous with him. And Alexander Henderson was a bigger national figure than somebody like David Dixon, for example. Again, David Dixon's books are still in print. I've never read David Dixon, but he's a major, majorly well-known figure from the same period. Samuel Rutherford, people would have heard of as well. Um, Samuel Rutherford's letters are still um, being widely read. He wrote the book Lex Rex, which is still fairly well read. So Alexander Henderson, sadly has kind of disappeared from the pages of history. He was born in the late 16th century in 1583 in a place called Creek Fifeshire in southwest Scotland. And not much is known of his early life. Actually, there's only one modern-day biography written about him. It's a book called Riots, Revolutions, and the Scottish Covenanters, written by, just trying to get his name, Jackson. I can't remember his first name. L. Charles Jackson, Riots, Revolutions, and the, and the Scottish Covenanters. So, and it's published by Reformation Heritage Books. So, Henderson was born late 16th century, southwest Scotland. He... Many of these people back then, they, some of them were extremely gifted and they ended up in, in university at the age of, well, not uh, for Henderson, he started university at the age of 16. And he actually studied under, under Andrew Melville. Now, just to get it into context, if you don't know who Andrew Melville is, just very, very simply, John Knox, what John Knox was to that first era and push of Scottish Reformation, Andrew Melville very much maintained it and, and promoted it, and he was very much the leader at the time. Henderson was to from about the 1630s onwards. And I think we can learn a lot from his example for today. This is one of the reasons I'm doing this today. Um, <clears throat> one of the things he was known for was his, his clarity. This is Henderson we're talking about now. His brevity and his simplicity. And that would be instrumental in his promotion of the National Covenant of 1638, where Scotland as a nation, nobility, church leaders, came together and signed a document which basically covenanted the, the nation before God. Now, that wasn't anything new to Scotland at the time. Scotland had signed a number of covenants, but it kind of died out a little bit. I mean, it's not like there was a bit of a gap between that and the King's Covenant, I think it was 1582. And one of the reasons for this was this encroaching Erastianism or Episcopalianism, very, very simply, the interference of the King in the matters of the Church, at the time being King James I of King James Bible fame. But I digress. More and more... King James interfered slowly at first with the affairs of the Church of Scotland, and the Church of Scotland wanted, well, they recognized Christ as the head of the church. Christ is the only head of the church, not any king, not any earthly king. So Henderson's education under Andrew Melville, it's interesting how he was trained under him and, and other people as well, shaped him and how he would later be used by God 
And that's the thing. Sometimes we can be doing something quote unquote boring. We can be like David watching the sheep, but the Lord may be preparing us for things later. In his early ministry, it's very interesting. Alexander Henderson was Episcopalian when he began. And the Archbishop of St. Andrews, this was basically the Archbishop of Scotland at the time, George Gladstone put Alexander Henderson in his first charge in a place called Lucas in Scotland. This church did not want Henderson. So much so, they barred the door closed. They nailed it shut. It didn't have a happy beginning. And to make matters worse in Henderson's beginning of ministry, and this is just show anybody can come back from a lot of different things in ministry, Henderson found his way into the church building through the window. So he was basically forced on the congregation, something that the church in Lucas rejected. Scotland, again, remind ourselves, was firmly Presbyterian, that the congregation would be the ones who would call the minister, not either the local patron or the king or bishops or anybody else. There were certain bishops that were imposed as well prior to that. Anybody ever heard of Robert Bruce, the famous Robert Bruce, probably one of the best, known for being one of the best preachers of the day. And Henderson went to hear Robert Bruce preach. People aren't exactly sure where it happened. It was a nearby village, probably called Forgan, from what I can gather. Bruce preached on the following text, and keep in mind Henderson's beginning. John 10, 1. Verily, verily, I say to you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. John 10, 1. So, um, the text convicted Henderson. It um, made him rethink him not going through the door, but going through the window. And... I haven't been able to gather where he was born, when he was lost at this point and got saved. Um, from what I can see, he was of Episcopalian. He he had much more of a loyalty to George Gladstone, the Archbishop, than he did to his people. Whatever the case, Henderson's heart changed from that point onwards. This is probably about sixteen twelve onwards, and this will be important in a second. But he went on, and he became greatly beloved of his congregation there at Lucas, where he spent 20, I think about 20 years there, some in the guts of 20 years. Now, in order to understand Henderson, Henderson, from about that period, wasn't really known for a whole lot up until 1636. And this, this by the way, all this ties in with the English Civil War. All this ties in with um, uh, the war between Scotland and England at the time. By the way, I even discovered that the Irish army invaded Scotland at one point during this whole period. So history is a funny thing, like a, bro- like a brother told me the other day. Um, I'd encourage you to study history. It's, uh, it's really interesting. Anyway, so in as we look through this period, right? Henderson's convictions change. He rejects the input of the king of England. I know the people have a strong affection for James I because of the authorized version being named after his, called after his name. I'm not saying the man wasn't a Christian or anything else like that. Um... But there were things I would definitely be against that he did. James became the king in Scotland first. This is in 1567. 
Oh, sorry. This is his father, isn't it? So, 1567, he becomes king. becomes James VI of Scotland. And there is... There is, in a sense, James is trying... James is Scottish, by the way. James I is Scottish. James I was not English. The, the Tudor kings were Scots. And the Scots very much said, you know, they're ours. This is ours. You know, Charles I, when he became king after Charles I and all this kind of stuff. So even though... We'll get onto that in a second. He became King James I in, what was it, 1606... Oh, sorry, 1603. And he became king of Scotland, England, and Ireland until his death in 1625. Probably the, the crowning achievement of King James I was the authorized Bible. The Puritans, it seemed, wanted another translation, and that was a success. But there were, there were massive disappointments with James I. The Puritans very much hoped that James was a Presbyterian, and in fact... He wasn't. Um, he believed in the absolute right of kings. To prove this, the article of Perth came during this period. The article, articles of Perth still live in infamy, especially among Presbyterians. Um, the articles of Perth came in in the year 1618. And again, it was to again impose of a top-down government on the Presbyterian Church. And just for those of you not aware of Presbyterian Church government, it's basically ruled by elders, and there's no one elder above another. And they don't have... And one will be a moderator, but the moderatorship will, will change, and there won't be perpetual moderators. They would be against the term bishop because there's a danger of them aggregating power to themselves and so on and so forth. The Articles of Perth in 1618 um, forced upon the church in 1618, and there was five of them. The Articles of Perth called for the following, right? Kneeling at the sacrament. And what, what brought, it brought to their mind was idolatry. Idolatry. So when we're talking about tyranny, when we're talking about opposing the king, it wasn't in a kind of a, a religious liberties sense. It was in an idolatrous sense. It was God's law is this, and to fight against the perfect law of liberty is itself tyranny. This is in the context in which this, I believe the phrase rebellion against tyrants is obedience to God goes back to this era. And that's where it comes from. It's not in an American later 1776 sense. This is the perfect law of liberty is being attacked. This is tyranny. Uh, also in the Articles of Perth, private communion. Okay, that's a problem with the sacraments. They need to be in communion together, not privately. Private baptism. And the Presbyterians oppose that for the confirmation of children. And also the observance of festivals such as Pascha and um, what was it called back then? Yule. Otherwise, no one was Christmas and Easter. So these were seen as idolatrous to the Church of Scotland. This is why they opposed them. It wasn't because, hey, you're the king, you have no right to say this. There's a sense in which that is true. But they opposed it because it was idolatrous and it was popish. This was the sense. Henderson was one of the commissioners in the, in the presbytery at the time who stood against this. And there's also evidence to say that he also didn't follow this because it couldn't be backed by the word of God. And it was an illegitimate authority from the government imposing on the church doctrines which were not biblical. So that was 1618. It's important to keep this in mind. 1618, the Articles of Perth, and um, 
the book of canons and all this extra trimmings that the Presbyterian church rejected. James is very cunning. And um, James was very slow at implementing. He had by his side the Archbishop John Spotswood, who was um, he was the, the successor to George Gladstone in St. Andrews. And if, if there was any sense in pushback, be the easiest way to put it, if there's any sense of pushback, these weren't implemented. These weren't forced upon. When Henderson refused to go along with some of these things and, and some of the things that were imposed upon communion, etc. and so on, Henderson didn't follow it, but he also didn't really face any severe discipline. And Spotswood and Henderson, not Henderson, Spotswood and James I were slow, and it was this what was called creeping Episcopalianism. It says this, Henderson of Henderson in 1619, Mr. Alexander Henderson has not given the communion according to the prescribed order, not of contempt, but he deponed solemnly, but because he is not yet fully persuaded of the lawfulness thereof, he is exhorted to strive to obedience and conformity. This is from the Synod of April 6th, 16. 19. So Henderson, he has changed. He is standing up against this tyranny. But not a lot happens for another 20 odd years. It's not like nothing happens. He spends much of his time studying. He spends much of his time with his parishioners, if you want to use that term, or he, the sheep, his people in his congregation. Greatly beloved. This is kind of a rural place. This is not central. Henderson hated the limelight. He had to be forced into it. He was just very reluctant to go into it. Um, kind of, you could say, an unlikely hero, but just perfectly suited for bringing the people together of Scotland in a time of crisis. Now, King James I dies in 1625. His son, King Charles I, becomes king of England and Scotland and of Ireland. And then things got worse. Not immediately, but while James was very slowly, slowly, Charles was um, not so much rasher than his father, it wasn't quite as cunning as his father, and on, and also at the time you had the rise in influence of the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was the Archbishop Laud, William Laud, who was um, well known infamously in church history. William Laud I suppose like Spotswood in Scotland was more influential than James because James came from Scotland. He grew up in Scotland. He was, that was his background. Where Charles, from what I, he was raised in Scotland, not in Scotland, in London. He didn't have any connection. And he, Charles became king in 1625 and didn't go up to, to Scotland until 1633. So it was a bit of resentment building up there. Uh, why isn't he coming up to us kind of thing? And this Erastian tyranny. And Erastianism is this. Erastianism believes that the state is over the church. There's various different degrees of it. There's various different forms of church government. The Roman Catholic form of church government believes that the church is over the state. The Presbyterian church government, and even the Baptist, it's different, but would be somewhat similar to this as well, that they're separate spheres of church government. One's not over the other. They're separate spheres. One's a spiritual, and the other one is, one's a spiritual, has a spiritual sword, which is the word of God. And the other one is the, the physical, earthly, and all that, which has this, the physical sword, which in, in, imposes uh, penalties and 
all that kind of thing. And then you have also Erastianism. And Erastianism is this. You know, with the with the, the queen at the moment who is head of the senior cells, excuse me, the head of the Church of England. That's Erastianism. There is only one head of the church. It's not the queen. It's not any other earthly authority. It is Jesus Christ himself. And it was one of the things that they fought for. And it was one of the things that they went in a defensive war against the English Tudor kings. So what I'm emphasizing here is it's not a, they didn't go to battle over our freedoms in a loose sense are being trampled upon. Of course they were, but it was Christ's crown rights were being fought for. This was the battle against tyranny that they fought for. That's what true tyranny is, fighting against God Almighty himself. So, and up until, so Alexander Henderson, Articles of Perth of 1618, he rises to prominence and national attention, you could say in Scotland, around between the 1636 to about 1638. The National Covenant happens in 1638. A lot happens in 1638. I'm looking at the time here, and I don't know if I'll get time to go through all of this today. I'll probably keep some of it for Monday. And if, guys, if you've got any questions in the chat, you can fire away. Um, so in that period, right before 16, say, what was it, 1636, what happens? There's a ramping up of this imposition of the Book of Canons. Very, very, like, again, Lord, Archbishop Laud, Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, and um, Charles I were very rash. And this rashness, they were like, oh, you see all these laws that James I had, the, Ar the Articles of Perth? Well, no, no, we're going to impose these. You have to buy these. You have to implement these things. So there was more and more pressure put on there. And this is how it was described by one man, Arch Archibald Johnson of Warriston. Archibald Johnson was very, very important as well to a couple of different documents of the day. The National Covenant, he co-authored. He was kind of a legal mind. Um, he was kind of a judge later on. And he also had a hand in the Solomon Covenant of 1643. This is what he said about the imposition of the service book upon the Church of Scotland at the time. This is what he said. At the beginning thereof, there arose such a tone a tumult, such an outcrying, what by the people's murmuring, mourning, railing, stool casting as the light was never seen in Scotland. The bishop, both after the, for the afternoon sermon, was almost trampled underfoot an afternoon, was almost stoned to death. The dean was forced to cage himself in the steeple. There was carnage. There were riots. It was a really tumultuous time. It might not sound like it. You know, we might think in our era that, you know, with this pestilence that we're going through, other points in church history that they faced other forms of crisis, and God used his people in the midst of these crises. They rejected that. And in 1638, all classes of society, this is what happens in Scotland. It was an amazing thing. All classes of society were drawn together in Scotland to sign the National Covenant, a document which bound them to solemn obedience before God to defend true religion. I might make people really nervous today. Who believe that things like the, the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, free, complete freedom of speech, complete freedom of religion, are biblical. And I challenge you to show me that. 
Is it the first amendment or the first commandment? We can't have both. Uh, very, very different to what the men at the time thought. The National Covenant, written up by Alexander Henderson and Archibald Johnson of Warston, who I just mentioned there earlier. Archibald Johnson was very much trying to show this is in conformity with the laws of the land. We already have these laws. And there was a sense in which the National Covenant didn't add anything new. It was just further emphasizing that the king did not have the right to impose himself on the church in a far clearer sense. In a sense, it wasn't that much different to other previous covenants. Then what happened? In so and the, and you you can't underestimate what happened here. All classes of society, they all come and they sign this document and they signed this document. The National Covenant was inaugurated in February twenty eighth, sixteen thirty eight, in the Greyfriars Church, Edinburgh. Now there are actually I discovered the other day there's a a modern nation that signed a covenant before God. I'm not saying how godly they are or ungodly they are. I do not know. But Uganda, apparently, saw like not too long ago, they renounced the pagan past. And we, we were in class one day. We saw this and kind of glanced through it. And I don't know how closely they keep to it or anything else like that. But they said they were going to follow the Christian God. This is... Really, really interesting. I think it's, it was in Uganda I saw. So religious covenants have been seen throughout history, seen throughout the Old Testament as well. Covenants sworn before God. And it's not like they're swearing anything additional to the Bible. They don't bind anything that is not already in the Scripture. Otherwise, it's an unlawful oath but they further bind the responsibilities of the nation. And by the way, we're still under, uh, in the United Kingdom and look, both islands, the Republic of Ireland, all three islands came together in 1643 to sign all classes of society. The church came together and swore before God to follow God. This can be found actually, the Solomon Covenant can be found in various editions of the Westminster Confession of Faith lest you think it's not that important, because the, the Solemn League Covenant, there's a sense in which the Westminster Assembly of, came out of the Solemn League. The Solemn League was signed first, and then out of the Solemn League, what are, as the Solemn League said, what are the best reformed practices? I'll just give you a, kind of a, a flavor of the Solemn League Covenant and what, was, what did they swear? Okay, I'm not going to read all of it. It's not a very long document. You can find it online, actually, very, very easily. We noblemen, barons, knights, gentlemen, citizens, burgesses, ministers of the gospel, commons of all sorts, and it gives a big long list, and say, and being of one reformed religion, have before our eyes the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So there's a bit of an introduction there, and this is a couple of things that they swear. Again, not going to read all of it, but just the, this paragraph here. Number one, that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly, through the grace of God, endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, government against all common enemies, the reformation of the religion and kingdoms of England and Ireland. These are things sworn before God centuries ago. So, so going back to the National Covenant, you have all these members of society coming to a place called Greyfriars Church in Edinburgh in 1638, February 28th, 1638. And they signed this covenant while it was opposed to what Charles I was trying to do which is the promotion of Erastianism 
and this is the important thing here, it was still urging loyalty to the king. That's important. We don't get rebellious against authorities on earth. They were very, very careful. They rejected Erastianism. They rejected the influence of the king and the, the undue influence of the king on the church. But at the same time, they urged that there would be no rebellion against the king. They did not see what they were doing as rebellion against the king. They wanted to respect the earthly authority. It says um, L. Charles Jackson in his book on Henderson says this, that both Henderson and Warson, quote, carefully structured words and phrases in a way that presented their actions not as originally from radicals, but those who are defenders of lawful practice. So they were trying to come here saying, this is the law. And basically going before King Charles I, you are breaking the law, not in lawless wrecks. But they were going before, here is the law. Yes, the law of God, but also the law of the land. They also were able to trace back the law of the land, and that's where Warriston came in in his influence. Later in the year of 1638, there was a general assembly, and a general assembly, Presbyterians will know, but for non-Presbyterians, a general assembly is basically our synod where the elders from the church come together, and it's seen as the church court, the highest church court. Again, no one person is above another. There will be an election of a moderator to act as chair, and, he's and what he's there to do is basically make sure that debate doesn't get out of hand. Um, he will direct things, but often he's not allowed to enter into debate himself. In the General Assembly, which was one of the first General Assemblies to take place for decades, they couldn't have General Assemblies. And any of them were kind of illegitimate, and the, the, the state was just telling them um, what to do. Um, it was in late 1638. So early in the year, they signed the National Covenant late in the year. And this is in response to this Erastianism from the king, the tyranny of the king of the day. So by arguing the other day about Romans 13 doesn't say that there is no place ever for resistance to tyrants, or even armed resistance. Henderson defended the use of arms in defense against tyranny. It's not as often as people think, but there is a legitimate place for it, and you need to be very careful. And Henderson argued from the Fifth Commandment, by the way. How many of us argue biblically anymore on these things? And I think I'm urging all of you, when you come to these things and when the decisions are being made about what's happening with coronavirus and all this kind of stuff and we're being locked in and all that, don't make arguments about your liberties. Make arguments based on the law of God. About loving your neighbor and loving God. Loving God first and foremost. If the state ever tells us, don't worship God, well, obviously we disobey that. But the, the law handed down a couple of days ago about, you know, most countries, about groupings over whatever, two or whatever number it is, that has nothing to do, that is not banning of the sacraments, that is not banning of the church at all. This is a decision made for the good of society, based upon a threat, a large threat, to the nation, really. If it's left uncontrolled or to spread wildly, it can do a lot of damage. Whether people believe and say, oh, well, the economy and all this, you know, this thing, if it does take out, if, if a lot of people die through it, there, even if you leave the shops wide open, how much of an economy do you think you're going to have? People are going to be nervous to leave their home. People are going to... This thing needs to be dealt with for the good of society. But getting back to the example of Alexander Henderson. Alexander Henderson moderates 
the General Assembly of 1638, and there's a massive pushback from Charles I. He's not happy with this. And how did Charles I feel? There was, there was hints of concession, and it looked like at times that, um, that maybe at times... But Charles wrote this to his representative, the Marquis of Hamilton. Hamilton went to the General Assembly in 1638, but his job was to basically bring the Scottish Church to heel. Charles wrote this to him in a letter. I would rather die than yield to those impertinent and damnable demands, as you rightly call them, for it is all one as to yield to be no king in a very short time. He saw this as a threat to his kingdom. So he wasn't at all for bending to any of the demands of the covenanters. Um, we're going to finish this and we're going to see what applications, what things can we learn. We're going to finish at the 1638 General Assembly. Lord willing, we'll finish it on Monday. Um, Henderson was chosen as moderator of the Assembly in Glasgow for many. He was an excellent choice, well thought of for many. He, he kind of grew in influence. And while he wasn't on the national stage until this time, he kind of burst, you could say, onto the national stage in 1638. Um, among nonconformists, a nonconformist, somebody who was nonconforming to the, the Book of Canons and things like that, there was one thing, you know, he had excellent debating skills. And people wanted him to argue the case. People wanted him. He was brilliant at our, you know, in a very simple way at promoting why people should sign the National Covenant and um, calling the nation to repentance before God. And then at this General Assembly, this takes place late 1638 in Glasgow in Scotland. And there's a parting of the way, you could say, between the assembly and Hamilton, who is the king's representative. The king wanted to preserve presbytery. He was not interested in any concessions. There were bishops put in there against the will of the Scottish church. And he, Charles was obviously nervous about this. Alexander Henderson said this in his role of moderator, we are obliged to loyalty and, a loyalty and obedience to our king, right? There is nothing due to kings and princes in matters ecclesiastical. Now, he's talking in context of church courts because they were during a church court at that time. What is ours? Let it be given to Caesar, but let God by whom kings reign, have his own place. Let Christ Jesus, the King of kings, have his own prerogative, by whose grace our king reigneth. We pray that we may reign, uh, that he may, sorry, that he may reign long and, prosper, and prosperously over us. Henderson was very, very careful to be respectful of the representative. He was there at the assembly at the time. He's very very careful to be re respectful, and he pointed toward the fifth commandment in his address as moderator. And that not only is the fifth commandment about superiors to inferiors, it's also the role of inferiors to superiors. Basically this, it's not, the fifth commandment is not just about submitting to those above you. It is, of course, that. It's not just about fathers and mothers, by the way. It's about authority. If you look at the, the larger catechism, for example, and it goes through the fifth commandment. But it is both directions. And Henderson argued from the fifth commandment in this. He said this. I wish the contrary from the bottom of my heart that your grace would continue to favor us with your presence without obstructing the work and freedom of the assembly. Hamilton was like, I'm going to leave. Forget this. He wanted, Hamilton wanted the assembly shut down. 
he knew that there would be trouble for these bishops. The bishops got disciplined. Eight of them got excommunicated. And it wasn't just that they were piling up on people who had a disagreement in church government. These were wicked and immoral men beyond their views on church government. There was lewd behavior. And they were excommunicated from the church. They were called by the Marquis of Hamilton, that is, again, the, the king's representative at the time, to dissolve the church, or dissolve the, um, the court, sorry. So to end this, they didn't. Respectfully, respectfully, they kept going. Into, and you see, we think, oh, well, that's not a big deal today. But back then, you go right up until the 15th century, there was, in most people's eyes across Europe, barring Waldensian, there was one church. And that's still that ingrained authority of the king, the divine reign of the kings, was deeply ingrained. And to go against that, was basically seen as, uh, as treasonous. Henderson preached a message called, it's known as the Bishop's Doom, on Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand, and I will make thine enemies thy footstool. At the end of the assembly, the bishops were disciplined. It was great victory for the church. Henderson said this, we have cast down the walls of Jericho, referring to Jer uh, Joshua chapter 6, let him that rebuildeth them beware of the curse of heel, the Bethlehemite. Now I think We'll leave it there for today. I mean, we can see resistance. To, there's, a, there's a place for resistance to tyranny. As Christians, I want us to think as Christians, not as civil liberty lawyers. I want us to think as Christian. When is it right? What is tyranny? And for my brothers and sisters in Christ in America, I'm all for the Second Amendment. I think that's biblical by the way. Alexander Henderson believed in armed defense, defensive war now, not in kind of rebellious casting off authority or anything like that. And there's a place for that. But they strove with all their might to be peaceful and respectful to the authority. Now let's think of our own current situation. Well, well, we'll come back to this in a couple of days. I mean, I suppose it's going to be hard not to talk about what is happening in the world. This is happening everywhere. There's a sense in which who knows what will happen to the services? Who knows what will happen to the internet at some stage? Are we trusting in the Lord? When things are difficult, when you face opposition, Alexander Henderson, 1618, right? What did he do? On biblical laws were brought before him, they refused, and they kept going. Again, this is Erastianism. Later on, there was more of a push upon and respectfully, see, I fear, I really fear in Britain and the United States, we've become very antinomian when it comes to the state and very disrespectful in the church when it comes to our leaders. Sure, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fail to varying degrees, but we shouldn't be like the world. You want to talk about tyranny, how about we think about the law of God in terms of tyranny? And I would encourage you, 
there are books that can be if you want to read more about this there's books um, again that L. Charles Jackson one there's memoirs of the Westminster Divines and there's a short one on, on the J.G. Voss The Scottish Covenanters it's not too expensive actually it's paperback and you can get it J.G. Voss son of the famous Gerhardus Voss so I'm Paul Flynn thank you so much for listening talk to you again soon